The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now on Fast, from off target to feeling like we're about to hit the bullseye, the CEO of retail giant Target now sounding a whole lot more upbeat about the second half of the year. We'll go inside this reversal of fortune, plus a bounce back to believe in stocks roaring higher today from big tech to banks to big oil. But is this a rebound that investors should approach with caution? And later, we'll chew on the rally and chewy, get under the hood of Tesla's electric day and find out why the street didn't like Meta today. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with the market bounce. The Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq seeing their best day of the month. The bullish move coming as a major bearish sentiment indicator hit a seven-week low. Consumer discretionary among the leaders up more than 3% today. One of its hardest-hit members seeing a revival. Target surging almost 4% today. CEO Brian Cornell delivering an upbeat tone for the year's second half, telling the Economic Club of New York and our own Becky Quick that back to school, back to college, and even Halloween shopping should boost sales, at the same time acknowledging a challenging environment for consumers due to inflation. Target stock down about 42% over the past two months. Now, remember, they warned about inventory levels last month. They got crushed. So now what, Karen? What are we supposed to make of, of Target? I mean, he also talked about the, the idea of, of coming out just weeks after the quarter and saying, you know, we're going to mark down a lot of the inventory to get ahead of the problem. Mm-hmm. That second shoe, that second drop down yeah. was really the one that was discomforting because it came so shortly after this giant bomb. And you would have thought, if you're going to have a huge, you know, bad news, you better just put it all out there. So were they overly optimistic or did it seem to get worse? My guess is that it surprisingly got worse quicker than they thought. So I guess, you know, he's going to do what he has to. I think that guy down on the margins from originally what we thought would be 8 percent, then came in at five and change, then a guy down to like two seven. Hopefully that's big enough that if they actually deliver in that neighborhood, that that would be somewhat of a floor for the stock because people think, all right, the worst is behind it. I don't think, though, that it's a one quarter event. Mm -hmm. I think this much inventory plus trying to balance back to school and then going into the holidays is going to be a difficult endeavor. And so I I think we're looking at more than one quarter of Pretty compressed margins here. The nice thing about listening to Brian Cornell is this is a guy that's giving you a vantage point into it, not just the consumer and not just, but logistics, transportation costs. He even, he even rambled on and rambled on. Not, not the right term here. Great Led Zeppelin song. But he talked <laughs> about the Biden policy on tax cuts and saying he kind of snickered in his own way. That's my interpretation of that. Uh, it, it, transportation costs up, but the, the inventories and inflation at historic highs, to me, is a, a message that I think we're going to hear from other companies. The nice thing about the message 
message today also, though, was he did say he expects a massive back to school, a massive holiday season. He didn't say anything about the consumer being dead. He really pointed out that this has been an impossible time to manage inventories. I think we've all said this on this desk with regards to other sectors as well. The inventory dynamic is going to be extraordinary. What company isn't at some point going to be stuck with bloated inventories? And I think that's that's the the state. Yeah, my my takeaway looking at the headlines and you mentioned, Mel, the stock's up 4 percent from a 52 week low and it's down 35 percent or so. It literally looks like like a half a tick on the chart. It doesn't really look that Mm -hmm. substantial. I'd say the headlines look very qualitative in nature. Right. When you think about it, I mean, they're really. So we had, you know, that guide down a month and a half ago. Then we had the the pre-announcement and they were all like you know, quantitative. There, there was a lot of data. There were, there were guidance. And this is like really how I feel. And I'll just tell you this, going back 25 years in my career in this business, when you start hearing, you know, second half loaded, it's not usually done in the second half. I'm just saying. And to your point, Karen, you said that these sorts of inventory issues dealing with all of the things we're dealing with, with supply chain and inflationary pressures, they are not one quarter thing. So again, does it make sense to press stocks in a market like this that is really negative right now? The sentiment is horrible. The sentiment is horrible in a stock like this, which some people will say is ground zero for this latest latest leg lower. No, it's not. Let them breathe. But see how they act. Like, to me, if this stock can't rally tomorrow after all the headlines and the dissecting of this sort of news, mm-hmm. and then people are walking away somewhat positive, then it's going lower. Also, to Karen's point, I mean, the consumer may buy all those things. I mean, Guy, you're probably in need of a new costume for Halloween at this mm-hmm. point. Um, but the margin on that costume for them is going to be razor thin. I mean, he was talking, first of all, Target is the second biggest net importer into the United States. And he was talking about shipping costs, logistics costs because of fuel going up a billion dollars overnight. He used the word overnight because of what has happened in the energy complex. Um, So yeah, they can sell all the costumes they want, but the question is, what are the margins on it? Well, first of all, sister, not the costumes that I buy. There are a lot of margins in my costumes, number one, (laughs) but we'll talk about that as we get closer to October. Now, I think, listen, this is my sense about Target quickly. I mean, they said everything they needed to say. If you're buying Target here, which by the way, I think you can, you're basically betting that they're not going to go 0 for 3. They're not going to strike out. They had one strike with the quarter, second mm-hmm. strike with the guide. I don't think it's going to happen again. I trust Brian Cornell's judgment. And I'll say this, in terms of valuation, you know, even if it's only $11.5, $12 next year's earnings, you're talking about a stock that's trading at what? 12.5 times-ish forward earnings. Not cheap. Actually, probably as low as it's been on valuation in quite some time. I don't think you're going to be rewarded for it over the next couple months. But Come fall, I think you're going to say, you know what, I'm glad I bought Target in the 140s. That's sort of my sense right here. So I, I kind of agree with Guy. I mean, I'm long, so I, I hopefully I agree with Guy or that wouldn't make sense. I just think that when you look at the multiple that they had, and it was always a little bit below the market multiple and certainly below Walmart, they've been penalized very, very, very heavily, deservedly, right? That was a disastrous quarter. Remember we had Mr. Simon on who said, Walmart's inventory was apocalyptic, yep. and then Target blew Walmart's inventory away. Right. They deserve that, that discount that they're getting, but I, th- I think they've been sufficiently punished that I'm staying long. But I, I think the message that so far we're hearing from companies is not really that they're seeing a fallout in demand, that, that, that the environment was so complex that they really didn't know how to handle it. Some of the smartest uh, and largest retailers in the world, second largest importer. That, that's disappointing to me as an investor because I kind of want to knock that down. I haven't heard about the consumer. I've heard about a change in, in terms of where, uh, you know, the segments that they were buying at and they were moving more away from big merchandise. But th- that's that's disappointing. Here's, here's my uh, question, though, and that is, I like the way you just 
just sort of turned <laughs> to me. And you're like, what is your, yeah, what is your question? My question, Dan, uh, is if Brian Cornell and, and maybe others out there are expecting some pretty strong back to school, back to college, back to Halloween yeah. parties and trick-or-treating and all that. Yeah, for new Halloween um, was a, what, an economic What, what are the inventories going to look like coming in for those seasons uh, in anticipated strength? And how do they deal with the inventories that they have to get rid of? And will they be inventory backlogged once again? Did we learn? Did they learn how to manage the inventory? Do those issues go away when they're anticipating such a strong back half of the year? Yeah, and I think really the point is about visibility. And that's one of the things that is just so difficult right now. And I'll just point you to a couple other headlines. I don't even know if we're going to talk about it. I looked at the rundown yet. But uh, Larry Summers talking about 5% unemployment for multiple years to fix this inflation problem. The president's listening to him. That would be a disaster, I think, for companies like Walmart and Target if you think about where a lot of that unemployment would come. And let's just say that is front-end loaded. Let's just say companies start getting worried about the lack of visibility they have, they start cutting costs by doing, uh, you know, job cuts. We're already starting to see that. So that and the housing data that we're starting to see sort of soften, kind of roll over a little bit. That's not great for the consumer, see, Tim, uh, to look, your we, point. I mean, like, ultimately, you know, looking out, let's say, a quarter or two. We had housing data today, which actually you know, was was down small, although we had record prices. And I agree. I mean, we've seen nothing out of the housing market data that reflects where mortgage rates are and what's going to happen in terms of the fall. And what I think the Fed is quietly doing, the, the biggest asset bubble of them all is not the stock market, it's the housing market. It's $28 trillion. And I, I, I just feel like they can't come out there and, and put a bullseye on that, but they're going to be very happy to see house prices go down. And what happens to the consumer when that wealth effect starts to feed into some of their choices? We'll see. So how does that factor all in, Karen? I mean, if, if the consumer could see some headwinds because of various costs rising, and they still go and they buy stuff at Target and, and whatnot. That, that, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Not they can continue to spend. Right. But Target won't necessarily, necessarily be the full beneficiary of that increased spend. Well, I think given the inventory that they have, they don't need to buy more inventory to meet that, to meet that supply. Right. So that getting to your earlier point. Really? Of, but they I, have, they're selling completely. They're selling back to school stuff. Back got, to like, school. Extra long but back to school they like, ordered a long time ago. If they okay. didn't have back to school all set now. by now. They are way okay. late. Right. We're looking, so so I think they're already set for that, though. I think the consumers there, as long as the consumer has a job and feel like they will keep their job. But to, getting to your point, that's where that's where I think you can see things unravel. If all these companies have, have inventory that needs to be cut and slashed, and they and Brian Cornell said, we're going to get ahead of this and we're going to be very aggressive, I mean, doesn't this ultimately mean that prices are coming down? It's not going to come yeah. down for food and gas, no, per se. No, it might come down for patio but, furniture but, if you're in the yes, market for that. It's very yeah, down. I am, actually. <laughs> you are. Well, it's actually a little late now, but and, and the stuff might get here by Christmas, but, <laughs> but who knows? No, I, I just, you know, I think there is some sense, and if you go into Target or Walmart today, there are certain segments of those stores where they are slashing prices. But if you look at food and you look at consumables, those things are higher than ever. Yeah. All right. Um, our next guest believes stocks are in a bottoming process. Lori Calvacina is the head of U.S. equity strategy for RBC Capital Markets. Lori, great to see you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. I read I read your target on the S&P 500 and I had to read it twice just to make sure I got the digits right. Forty seven hundred is what you're seeing. What what is the path there from here? So, look, I think our target assumes that we are going to find a bottom in this market soon. And one of the things that we've talked about is that when you come out on the other sides of these kinds of declines, the rebounds tend to be pretty fierce in terms of coming back. Now, I think it's interesting to look at where 
where markets tried to make a stand. They tried to make a stand above 3,900. It held for a little bit. And then finally, we broke below that on the backs of this last CPI report um, and, and sort of the, the big pivot that we had from the Fed or deeper move into hawkish territory. And so then the market really started to price in a recession. I think what the market's grappling with at this point in time is what kind of recession, if we get one, is coming. And I think that discussion is just getting started. But I do think that when you look at sentiment in the market, some of the sentiment gauges are telling us that we We've really already reflected the worst of what's to come. You look at CFTC, for example, we finally started to really kind of hit the lows of the 2015-2016 industrial recession, which was all-time low in terms of U.S. equity futures positioning for asset managers. So really, it's the idea that we've pulled forward a lot of this pain that's coming on the fundamental side. Hey, Laurie, it's Tim. I, I agree with that. I think sentiment's awful. I think positioning is light. I think it's been light for months. So my question is, and, and I respect the, the, the time dynamic of where we close and bottom to where you can get to 4,700, but 47 at least implies some EPS number for the S&P. So help us understand, because that hasn't come in for anybody, so it seems. And, and I have a tough time believing it stays where it is. Look, I think you're right. I think we do need to see numbers come down. But again, I go back to this kind kind of recession that the market might be anticipating. We spent some time over the weekend working through different recession scenarios. As I talked to investors last week, I think that they have a sense that they want to buy the market around sort of 15, 16 times. They don't really need heroic valuation multiples to get back in, but they do need some confidence in the E. And so I'll spare you all the math, but we put together a, a sort of quick recession scenario that kind of models things after the, two, after the 2020 economic downturn that we had. And what we see is that if a recession is starting in the third quarter and you get through it in the next couple quarters, you can still have pretty decent and earnings growth for next year. We basically came up with the number 235. And if that ends up being in the right neighborhood for next year, you're trading around a 15 times multiple, at least you were late last week, um, which is something investors have been telling us they think is reasonable. We just really need to get some sense of what the contours of this recession are going to look like. Is it going to be short relatively quick? Or is it something that's going to be kind of nasty and prolonged and take a good bit of time to get out of? Most of the investors I was talking to last week, Tim, are in that former camp where they think this is something we can get through pretty quickly and won't really leave any lasting scars, given how strong the consumer and corporations are going into this. Hey, Lori, it's Karen. So let me ask you something about uh, how you figured out the scenario. In a recession, do you think that are you modeling that the Fed will stop raising or ease somehow and therefore we get you know, back to a higher multiple? Because it would seem like then we really want a recession, whereas if this consumer and the market and the economy sort of hanging on, then the Fed keeps tightening and multiples come down. I think that's exactly right, Karen. And one of the things our economics team has talked about is that if the Fed starts to sort of see some squishiness in the employment data, they don't think that's necessarily something the Fed is going to tolerate for too long. So I think to get to that kind of quick and faster recession scenario, you do have to assume that the Fed reacts and sort of shifts direction again before the end of the year. I think that's a very valid assumption. So complete pivot then. I mean, what does that pivot look like in your forecast? To get to 4,700, what sort of pivot is it? Is it just you stop hiking rates or you're actually easing in some way? 
I, I think that you have to signal what the path is. I think that markets really want to see the Fed, you know, before to just to view it as a true pivot. I think that the market would want to see sort of a scaling down of the rate increases and some sort of signal for the exit strategy and some mm -hmm. sort of signal, frankly, that they are concerned about some of those, you know, kind of difficult employment numbers that we think are set to come. So I think it's really, you know, not just the actions in the short term, but the forward guidance that they provide and some sensitivity, frankly, that they do care about the employment side of the mandate. Lori, great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Lori Calvacina, RBC. Guy Adami, can you see 4,700? There's a lot. Yeah, a lot's unraveled there. I don't see it. But I'll tell you what I do see quickly. I mean, we talked about it Wednesday night after the Fed got finished speaking. I thought the next day you'd have a pretty robust rally. That didn't happen. But on Thursday, I saw something I hadn't seen in a while, panic on the downside. And I thought that was a good thing. I still think there's another 8%, 9% to the upside, gets us to 4,100 in the S&P. And then the next leg lower. In terms of forecasts, I think $235 for earnings is a little stretched. I'm probably closer to $210. And I think this valuation in this environment, you know, $16, $17 makes sense. But I'll say this as well. If this Fed does pivot in the back end of this year and starts talking about lowering rates, there's something catastrophic going on. And quite frankly, with inflation north of 8% and their mandate now to get it back to 2 I don't know how they can, I don't, they can't, well, I'll use this term. There's no way they can thread that needle. Zero percent chance. Yeah, and just to be fair, I mean, Lori has been relatively cautious on the economy, on the economic backdrop in general. And I think it really just highlights how difficult sometimes it is to mesh a kind of really uncertain economic backdrop with what might happen with risk assets that might bottom before the worst of the news is there. And, and again, I don't really see 4,700 anytime soon. That's basically back towards the all-time highs. In January, there was like 4,800. And I think we probably bottom from much lower levels. And I also think something that I'm just going to be really consistent on, it's going to be time that really kind of makes the bottom. It's not going to be a V reversal because to Guy's point, if they do pivot after this aggressive hiking, the most aggressive hiking we've seen out of a central bank in decades, it's going to be for something that's not going to be so equity or earnings friendly for the S&P 500. I just don't see how they can pivot. You had Richmond Fed barking out there today saying we have to move faster. The, 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 the breadth of inflation and the persistence but level the more of front loaded it. things are, isn't it raises the possibility that they could reverse later on in the year? It does, but, but but it, it, it just tells you how far off size they are. We have Fed Powell. We have a semi-annual Humphrey, Humphrey Hawkins testimony later on in the week. I think we're going to get a lot more here. But uh, Fed funds rates down to 350 towards the end of the year. And, and the Fed telling you they're probably, you know, 30 bips higher than that in 23. Uh, I think they have to go a lot higher. And again, they're going to go have to go higher than the neutral rate to get there. Coming up, we're taking a trip to Splitsville after a big spin-off announcement from Kellogg. So which other companies could benefit from a breakup? we got the details next. Plus, stocks ripping higher today, rebounding from the worst week of the bear market. But what do the technicals say about where we are heading next? We'll hit the charts ahead. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? 
Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Snap, crackle, pop for shares of Kellogg. The 116-year-old maker of Rice Krispies, Corn Flakes, and Frosted Flakes has decided to split into three companies focusing on cereals, snacks, and plant-based foods. So this got us thinking what other companies should head to Splitsville to unlock some value. Tim, you had some ideas. Well, the first thing that's also interesting is often these are opportunities where we see companies come together. There are synergies in bringing companies mm-hmm. together. There's massive cost savings, and that's usually the reason for doing it. Uh, when you're breaking up these companies, you're actually adding costs. So uh, there are dis-synergies to this, and it's something I think you have to be very careful of. I-, I would just look at industries first and answer the question. Look at what's going on with the department stores. Look at their uh, ability to spin off e-commerce business. We've you know, heard about it with Saks, uh, that dynamic with Macy's, so some of the parts makes a lot of sense to me. The other names that just seem to be ones we've talked about from the beginning of time, Google. Uh, Google and, and ultimately what you have here uh, with the core uh, business versus the, the, the YouTube business, which I think is undervalued. And the question is, is YouTube a media company or is it really a digital ad company or is it you know, all the things that it is in between. And I think with Amazon, you have a dynamic with AWS and with the core e-commerce business, which, again, you have a high growth business versus a relatively now low growth business, one with high margins and one with very low margins. And right now, I don't see any reason why you'd want to separate them if you're the company. Yes, 100 percent, because if you think about it, what they're valuing, what investors are valuing that retail business is, it's basically nothing. So you're putting I, I was on with a friend of mine who's, uh, I think, a very smart tech guy. He's like put a 13 times multiple on the AWS revenue. I was like, who's putting 13 times sales on anything in this environment? So if you were going to re-rate that stock or re-rate the AWS portion lower, Amazon's going much lower, right? Because you're not going right. to assign more value to that. So to me, I think you have to start and stop all of these conversations with does it unlock shareholder value? for the whole. Yeah. Uh, Karen, would you be a happier Alphabet shareholder if it's split? I don't think that's the problem, really. Yeah, I feel like. No, but is it optionality and is it, is it driver, is it catalyst? Because I, I think we've said that about YouTube, undervalued, no? I, I guess YouTube's undervalued, maybe, but not anymore. I think the valuation of these properties is coming down, right? So I'm, I'm not so sure. I always thought that you know, I, I do think the transparency that Ruth Porat has brought would, has helped evaluation a lot and the financial engineering, the buyback. But um, one that we didn't mention that is is doing a split, J&J, it's going to take a long right. time, but the consumer part of their business, I think, will be interesting. Yeah. Guy, which mm-hmm. split have you heard about here on this desk that you are a fan of? J&J is interesting. Let me just throw this out there mm-hmm. just to be the counter voice. If, if you need to split your company up in order to unlock shareholder value, then you're running your company poorly. You're not telling your story well enough. The street clearly doesn't understand. That's my take on the whole thing. Like, 
Why do you have to break it up in order to get rewarded for it? Tell your story better and maybe the stock market would start rewarding you for the company that you have. Just throwing that out there because why not? Well, I, I think of I think of activist shareholders, though, and whether it's a Nelson Peltz and you know where he's been a Procter and Gamble. I mean, breaking up companies into pieces, at least historically, has been a way to value the parts. Uh, I, I agree, though, companies should not have to come up with uh, capital markets dynamics and and, and and tricks essentially to add value. But I, I do think companies, many cases, uh, are worth more than the sum of the parts. All right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A ton of green arrows today as stocks shake off their worst week of the bear market. But is the rally just a head fake? We'll hit the charts next to find out. Plus, a ferocious day for Chewy. Shares jumping as analysts sink their teeth in. So should you get your paws on the name or let sleeping dogs lie? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Call it a rally, a bounce, a rebound, whatever you want to call it. They all fit today's action. All three major averages roared higher today. The S&P with its best day since early May. All 11 sectors in the green today led by energy. The Nasdaq up around 2.5%. The Dow finishing the session up close to 650 points. Check out the gains in United Healthcare. It alone accounted for about 190 points on the Dow. Do you buy this rally, Guy? Do we see the worst of it? I think in the short term, absolutely. You know, I thought the panic was on Thursday. Friday was sort of sideways. Today makes sense. I think the market can rally for the next couple weeks, quite frankly, 8 9%. But then I think you're selling it again. I think this rally is going to provide you with the opportunity to make sales and then look for a subsequent move down to probably, I don't know, 3400 And I'll give you one more little tidbit because why not? It may come in the form of Apple earnings, not necessarily mm. the quarter, but potentially their guide. And if Apple Guide suggests like what I think is going on. And Katie Huberty from Morgan Stanley has been cautious. She hasn't been that way in quite some time. I think that's what takes the market the next leg lower. Yeah, we are in this little, I don't want to say honeymoon period, but information vacuum maybe is a better term for it ahead of earnings season, Karen. Yeah, I mean, we're just back to where we were Thursday at lunch. So it felt like a big rally, but, you know, and I've been positioned for a little a little bounce, um, but mostly long. So it's been, you know, a dreadful, dreadful month. But I think we maybe have a little more room to run. I agree with Guy. I don't know if it's going to happen tomorrow or not, but I still think there's a little more. There's room above for some relief rally to continue. Would you uh, use these rallies to sell? Yeah, I, look, the 
21 percent, 21 and a half percent move in 50 sessions from April 1 down in the S&P left you in a place where stuff's very oversold. We've digested also think about what we digested last week in terms of the move and the yield curve, but mostly just rates outright. And, and so um, I, I think you have. You've had three rallies, um, certainly two decided rallies of north of 9 percent in the S&P since January. This is an opportunity, especially uh, if you can get some sense from uh, a couple of the data points on inflation. And that would really be, I think, the catalyst to giving you more of that trading range. But would agree, you know, somewhere up to around 4,200, I think uh, we have some room. I think down to 3,800 uh, and change. We've, we've certainly been testing that. I actually think the next level is 35. Yeah, I'll just say this. Quarter to date, I mean, it's got to be one of the worst quarters we've had in the market. The S&P is down nearly 17 percent. Obviously, that's including today's gains here. And, you know, could we rally into quarter end before, like you're calling it an information vacuum? It's not too dissimilar than what we saw in the second half of March. There was this kind of lead up into that first Fed increase that we've seen in many years. And then we just rallied on the way out of it. But to Guy's point, I don't think the news gets better as we get into July, because I really do think the focus is going to be on that E coming down. And then investors are really going to start to say, okay, well, we overshot on the multiple to the upside. We're probably likely to do it near term in the downside. For more on where the markets could be headed next and where to find opportunity, let's bring in Katie Stockton, founder of Fair Lead Strategies. Katie, great to see you. You too. So what are the next levels to watch on the S&P? Well, we have one level that's in play and we've been watching it for a long time. It's around 38.15. It's based on a Fibonacci retracement and it has been penetrated pretty decisively and that leaves a breakdown pending confirmation in our work this Friday. So if we do see that breakdown, Unfortunately, the targeted support level also derived from a Fibonacci becomes about 3,200. There is interim support around 3,500. That's obviously a very widely followed level and would be a natural place for some kind of relief rally. And as you mentioned, it does seem like there's some kind of relief rally underway, but we don't think it's really tradable. We are using it in part to perhaps cover some short positions with the possibility of additional stabilization, but we think it will be somewhat short-lived and very difficult to trade really similar to what we've seen already uh, year to date in terms of these counter trend moves. So let's say um, we are on a path uh, to that lower level that you had outlined, Katie. What what does the other side of it look like? I mean, we just had a strategist at the top of the show. I don't want to pit you guys against each other. But from the viewer standpoint, you know, you're hearing a strategist say 4,700. <laughs> what do you see in the charts? Well, to me, I think September, October would be a very natural sort of timeline for a major bottom. If it, I don't know if it'll be the bottom or just a major bottom, but the way the indicator set up, and it really is just based on technical analysis, nothing macro is being incorporated here. But the way the indicator set up is that we should have some kind of reaction to the long-term oversold condition by then. And what we're watching in particular is the high growth arena as measured by benchmarks or ETFs like ARK-K as one, those areas of the market are extremely oversold from a long-term perspective. So we're watching for some kind of basing phase to develop there. And by that, we, we're not adding exposure in anticipation of it, but looking for more stabilization, sort of sideways to lower price action. And as that happens, we would expect momentum to improve sort of under the surface. And that's where confidence would be restored in our opinion, enough to get the market out of this bear market cycle. So we're watching for basing phases to develop in the most oversold areas of the market as really a precursor to that kind of big major low. Do we need to see big cap technology go down more in order for this overall basing to happen? 
I would think that we'll see downside leadership on the next downdraft yet again from mm -hmm. the mega cap complex on the technology front. So if you took a technology spider or XLK and you uh, compare it to the S&P 500, it's been trending lower year to date. That's with underperformance uh, you know, from the likes of Microsoft and Google and even Apple more recently. So we, we're looking for more of the same in terms of downside leadership there. And it's, it's hard to picture the major indices weathering that very well, as you can imagine. So based on the indicators alone on their long-term charts, so looking at their monthly bar charts, they have a little bit more room uh, than the higher growth arena um, in terms of downside to oversold territory. All right. Katie, great to see you. Thank you. You too, of course. Katie, Katie Stockton, a fair lead. Um, Guy, more downside. I mean, Chris Verone just on Friday was saying 100 for Apple. Well, 100, I mean, if Apple were to trade 100, that would, to me, if doing the back of the envelope math, that gets you an S&P somewhere between 3,100 and Tim's 3,200. So that would be, I think, catastrophic. I, mean, I don't think anybody thinks Apple, well, I shouldn't say that. I think people would, dreaming they could buy Apple that low, I don't think it gets there. Tim has mentioned 115 a number of times. And I got to tell you, into their July 26th, I believe that's in the report release, that starts to make a lot of sense given the backdrop. So I'll say again, I think the market can rally from here, another 8 or 9%. I think that's where you're taking money off the table and you're looking for that flush into Apple earnings at the end of July. Yeah. Dan? Yeah, so if you look at the pre-pandemic high in February 2020, the S&P 500, it was about 3,400. And if you want to use the 10-year average multiple of the S&P 500 about 17 times, you could say that in a bear market, in a recession, that should be lower. But let's just use the 10-year average. And you want to say that earnings growth at high single digits for the S&P 500 for this year are still too high. We all agree on that. We've all been talking about that. And let's just say they're flat. Okay, worst case scenario, maybe that's 200 bucks times 17 gets you to 3,400. That's when I would start thinking down 30% round tripping the entire move, you know, that's how you have to think about bear markets. It's like, just like we all knew things were getting a little too overzealous late last year, early into this year, you're not going to know. It's going to have to feel really bad before you say, all right, we're probably over. Down 30% in the S&P 500, retracing all of that is probably at a place where you start to feel that's like things are really bad. That's a big earnings revision downward, though, for yeah, the but straight the, I mean, consensus to well, 200. I, so I totally agree with but getting we'll back. After the fact, though, just to be yeah. fair. Getting, getting back to pre-pandemic levels on a lot of different stuff. And you have to remember that the S&P did 15 percent from October of 2018, uh, sorry, of 2019 into that pandemic, pre-pandemic high uh, somewhere on Feb 20, 2020. So, again, it was a market that rallied heavily into the pandemic, uh, crashed. And so using that high point, I think, might even be generous um, if, if you're actually trying to figure out where things should, should move to. All right. Coming up, Meta Meltdown shares sitting out today's big rally. We'll tell you what had the company formerly known as Facebook formerly in the green. Plus, Tesla shares in high gear, the EV maker surging, lighting up the options pits. We'll tell you how traders are playing this one when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Meta sinking 4% today after reaching a settlement over discriminatory advertising on Facebook. The Department of Justice finding that Meta used information protected under federal housing law to run its targeted ads. The stock is now touching levels not seen since April 2020. Let's bring in Gene Munster of Loop Ventures to break down the headlines. Gene, this seems like this is just another way in which um, Meta's hands are 
handcuffed a little bit in, in terms of allowing advertisers to target? You hit it right on, Melissa, is that that is one of the forces in play here is that it's getting harder for monetizing. That's one of the big pictures, whether it's Apple and IDFA, whether it's the housing today, whether it's upcoming changes around employment and credit that Facebook has vowed to make using less personal data around that. All of those add up to part of the negative equation here, which is harder to monetize. In fairness, there's a, there's a different side to the ledger, uh, which is what is working for the company. About 35% of global Internet users visit a Facebook meta property daily. It's quite remarkable. And we have those two forces uh, working in opposition. That, that growth of that base is still growing despite increases of competition from TikTok. Facebook Reels is doing, is doing surprisingly well. Uh, but that is what is at play here, and that's why it trades at 11 times next year's earnings as investors understandably are getting uh, tired of this drip around more difficult to monetize. Hey, Gene, it's Karen. So as, as a, I don't know, disgruntled Facebook holder, meta holder, what do you think about, I know you, the privacy rules definitely have an effect but how about the underlying business part, whether it's small businesses who aren't advertising as much because they don't, you know, they don't literally have the product in hand because of supply chains or just sort of a, a little bit of, you know, less optimism about the economy. How much do you think that weighs on their business versus the privacy issues? I think it's the bigger piece in the near term. And I put the near term on it the next over the next three months. And I suspect that all companies are going to be cautious about September. Uh, your team has done a good job of enumerating that risk, and Facebook is no different. I would put them in the same category as Google that has this kind of high-level um, macro risk to it. So that is uh, uh, the, the other uh, – I, I don't highlight that as one of the two forces because I think it is uh, more – over the next three to six months. But that's a big deal is trying to figure out what's the true health. And I suspect that the economy today is in good shape, but I suspect in three months that won't be the case. And that probably is going to create some near-term uh, uh, continued downward pressure on shares of Facebook or Meta. Hey, Gene, the first year that this company was public, 2012, they had gross margins about 76% or so. In 2016, they demonstrated how good they were at targeting. Their margins were about 87%. In a year or two, they're supposed to be back in, let's say, the mid-70s. Is this part of the problem here? Is that just that gross margin for this product that was thought to be infallible is kind of going away? And then does it really trouble you, this pivot that they're making into, well, let's call it the metaverse or VR, AR, whatever they're doing? Is that that's going to be that's going to that's really going to eat in those margins too i think investors are able to kind of parse out some of the investments in the metaverse relative to the overall margins and i think that uh, one thing that is a, a road that has been well traveled that has uh, proved to be reliable around social is that when engagement is growing companies find ways to monetize find ways of increasing profitability and uh, so I think that they'll get a pass on some of the investment in the meta because they can break that out. But in general, that to me is, uh, you know, the, 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 the true kind of the Zen quality here about thinking about this company is to think about uh, ultimately where is engagement going? If engagement's growing, they're going to find ways to monetize it. If engagement starts to de deteriorate, whether it's because of uh, TikTok or some other competitor out there, 
there's no telling where the bottom is. And so that's ultimately what it comes to when, uh, when kind of deciphering where social is going. As it stands today, I think they're doing a decent job of hanging in there. And, of course, it's the most important piece we'll be watching. Gene, thanks for phoning in. Always good to get your thoughts. Gene Munster of Loop. Um, so this stock, you saw it there, off 59% from its high. Uh, it's down, what, 18% over the past month versus the NASDAQ 100, which is down 2%. Guy, I know you hate the stock. There are plenty of other reasons to hate it, aside from <laughs> the ones that you, you hate it for. Now, I mean, think about what you just said. I mean, this was a trillion-dollar company this, last, this time last summer, effectively, right? Now we're below $500 billion. Stock, to your point, down 60% since that all-time high. You can make a compelling case on valuation. You could have done it for a while. I mean, again, Sheryl Sandberg leaving, big deal, not a big deal. I think it's a big deal. I don't see any positive catalyst, again, my opinion, other than valuation until you get to earnings at the end of July. So, you know, I think, listen, if it can't rally today, given the tape and given the sell-off the stock has had, when is it going to rally in, in terms of uh, into earnings or anything but? So I think it's still a no-touch. This is the real standout in today's rally. I mean, Big Cap Tech had some pretty nice gains, now, except for Meta. In, in fact, if you'd looked at the triple Qs and you would have expected them to probably yeah. outperform the S&P by 100, 125 basis points, and they didn't. And I'll just say that in the greatest tech rally we've ever seen, and yeah, I think it, it absolutely exceeded .com because these are real companies. So going all the way back to July of 2017, this company has underperformed the S&P um, while the rest of the tech giants have gone through the roof. Yeah. Karen, well, yeah, so anything uh, advertising related, which Netflix might be now, sure. Disney, Meta, all underperformed today. Disappointing. Meta particularly. Yeah. Very disappointing, <laughs> right. no it's, doubt. But every day that happens. Speaking of Meta, do not miss Jim Cramer's interview with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. That is tomorrow night on Mad Money right here on CNBC. That will be a good one for sure. Coming up, Tesla charging higher and the move had options traders plugging in. We'll tell you how they're playing the name next and throughout June. If you're celebrating Pride Month, here's MasterCard's Shamina Singh. The biggest influence on me growing up as an Indian American woman in a small southern town was a leader we lost this year to cancer. Her name was Urvashi Ved, and she was a fighter, an advocate, and an adversary to many related to all things LGBTQ+. She stood up for what was right, not only when it was easy, but especially when it was hard. And she's been a role model for me and many other young people around the world. I'll forever be grateful to Urvashi as a friend, a leader, and a fighter. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the action in Tesla today. Shares surging 9% after its CEO Elon Musk said the EV maker will cut about 10% of its salaried workforce while also growing the number of hourly employees. And even after today's big move, one options trader is betting the gains will not stop here. Mike has the action. Mike Coe, what do you have? Uh, one option trader, maybe many. Tesla is always one of the busiest single stock options, and today was the busiest. It traded over one and a quarter million contracts, the only single stock option to actually trade over a million contracts today. Bullish bets outpaced bearish ones. In fact, the options market was a net buyer of equivalent $2 billion worth of Tesla stock today. An example of the short-dated call buying we saw was a purchase of 1,000 of the weekly 775, 780 call spreads. The buyer there risking 80 cents, a small fraction of the current $700-ish stock price on a bet that the stock could rally more than 9% by the end of the week. That trade would pay better than five and a quarter to one if it did. Mm. Karen, what do you think? 
I don't know. <laughs> I got a little distracted and didn't fully hear him, to be honest. Okay. All right. Well, so. <laughs> what do you think of uh, Tesla and the notion that these gains could continue? I don't know. I mean, to me, I, I feel like the Twitter thing has so much more to do with it. And I thought David Faber brought up something really interesting about him talking about the loan. This, this, mm-hmm. the, as you know, that's maybe an out. So I don't know. It's just the flip side of Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just say this. Go back and look at the last few quarters, the last two weeks of the last few quarters. They usually coincide around the time that he sends out that email, you know, the rah-rah thing. Hey, we got to make our quarter. And the stock rips into the end of the quarter. So maybe this is the start of this. And maybe this options trade that Mike just described is one way to define your risk and play for that sort of move. All right. Mike, thank you. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up. Barking up the right tree, shares of Chewy jumping as analysts say the worst is over for the stock. So is it time to throw this name a a bone? We'll discuss that next. Fast Money's back into. Welcome back to Fast Money. Chewy topping the tape today. Shares soaring 11% after an upgrade from Wedbush. Analysts citing strong customer retention and an attractive valuation on the company. Tim, you own this one? I don't own Chewy, oh, okay. uh, but I, I, I've, and I've talked about Woof before. Uh, <laughs> oh, right. So, so the, the whole space is certainly a, a case where you're going to see a lot of resiliency to the downside. There's not, you know, people don't stop spending on their pets. In fact, uh, probably outside of their children, this is where. But the gross margin improvement, in fact, their gross margin was 27%. They had a very good first quarter. They surprised to the upside, and this was after a couple quarters where they were pushing back on that. So I, I don't think you get carried away. You've had a decent pullback in the name. I think the valuation says you own it here. Um, let's hope they don't stop spending on the pets. But yes, the thing is, be. you know, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of pet adoptions and pardon the term, but I mean, some pet owners are fair weather friends to their pets, right? They, they needed a pet during the pandemic. Not Guy Adami, by the way. He is, oh, no, no, no. He is as loyal guys, to yes. his doggies. Dog. Yes. That dog guy. Treats the dogs probably better than, I don't know. I'll tell you this. I mean, I treat my dogs better than I'm treated on Twitter. If you want to follow me on Twitter one of these days. Real quick, in terms of the stock, I'm with Tim on this one. I mean, that quarter on June 1st was really good. Uh, supply chain seemed to be working now in their favor. And one of their directors just announced a purchase of, I think, 180,000 shares. That's not insignificant. So, listen, a $35 price target is not necessarily a ringing endorsement with this upgrade, but there are the people much higher on the street, and there's a pretty decent short interest. I think it goes higher. Yeah. Dan, have you ever trafficked, or would you ever traffic in this one? No, but oh, I, I, will say that, <coughs> I will say this. Uh, oh, Dan's a pet guy, too, as we have seen from his I have two. Guy. I have two cats and yeah. a dog. And here's one thing. I think there was this trade-up to these higher-end like end products for a lot of things. I think that probably comes back in a more difficult environment. Yeah. And I do think that some of the um, behavior that when you couldn't spend money elsewhere. So I don't know how this could avoid you know, like the trap a of other retailers. Of yeah, you know what I mean? so, yeah. Okay. Up next, final trade. trade time. Guy Adami. On what's been a dicey tape, Amgen is held in pretty well. AMGN. Tim Seymour. We've talked about trading ranges on the show, and I think that's what the market gives us. In China tech names, Alibaba is one where making higher lows, and I do think up to 123 to 125, you actually have a trading range breakthrough there. I think you go higher. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, Merck has been down a lot in this terrible month. Nice rally today, but I still think there's more upside. MRK. 
Dan, Nathan. Yeah, we spent some time trying to read the tea leaves when the market's going to bottom. Keep an eye on the bank stocks. Look at this XLF, the relative underperformance of major banks like JP Morgan are saying something to me. All right. Thanks for watching Fast to see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.